You could argue that without France, there'd probably be no United States of America. Coming up in the hour ahead, historian David McCullough explains some of the important ways that Paris has influenced the growth of the USA. History is about more than politics and war. History is about art and music and architecture and medicine and science, all that the human mind and the human spirit can achieve. An American journalist tells us why her Paris neighborhood is like a living museum that feels like home. You walk past a shop and you can smell a lemon tart and, you know, you just have to say, there's something good about the world today. And get a taste of how they celebrate Bastille Day in France. I'm a sailor and I've got the experience of sailing along the coast on the night of the 14th of July. And you see something like 15, 20 fireworks pretty much at the same time all along the coast. It's absolutely unbelievable. Bonjour. It's Travel with Rick Steves. No matter how much the late-night TV comics like to joke about the French, Americans do owe a great deal to France. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, historian David McCullough reminds us why many of America's most important inventors and scientists and thinkers and artists went out of their way to learn from the French. Plus, journalist Elaine Shalino tells us why she bought an apartment in a Paris neighborhood you've probably never heard of. It's where daily life continues as it has for centuries, chatting with shopkeepers and meeting your neighbors on streets that once defined the nation of France. Let's start out the hour with a look at the big French national holiday as they bring out the tricolor flags for Bastille Day. It commemorates France's own revolution to establish a government that was by, for, and of the people. And for some, this year will likely take on an extra dimension as the French push past the fears raised by recent terrorist attacks to celebrate their freedoms together. Joining us to celebrate Bastille Day and to take your calls at 877-333-RIC is tour guide Patrick Vidal. He lives in Brittany, in the northwest of the country. And Julie Sanvaux grew up in mid-America in Kansas, but a decade ago made a home for herself in Burgundy, near the center of France. Patrick? Julie, welcome. Bonjour. C'est un plaisir. So what is it about freedom and the French? Uh, did I overstate that, Patrick, about uh, the passion the French have for government by, for, and of the people? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a bit of a dream. It's a bit of a myth. I mean, uh, yes, the French culture have always pushed towards that. But uh, if you look pragmatically at the French Revolution, it's a fight for middle class to get some room in the society. We come out of an old regime which is saying, I'm either a noble or part of the clergy or I'm the rest of the world. If I'm a merchant, if I'm a businessman, if I'm a lawyer, a journalist, I've got no official place in the society. I can become wealthy, I can, but mm-hmm. I don't have any official place. I can't pass that down to my kids. And it's, it's very difficult to settle into the society. And if you look at all the big faces of the French Revolution, they're all intellectuals. They're all middle class, upper middle class. Mm. And that's the fight of the middle class for that. Now, Julie Sanvaux, when you are in France and you have this Bastille Day erupting all around you, if you think back to the first Bastille Day, what actually happened? Well, the storming of the Bastille is where it got the name Bastille Day, which was turned into a prison, a chateau, a fortress that was guarding the city. Actually, there was only a few prisoners in there at the time, but what it represented, what the Bastille represented to the people was the fact that anyone could be put in prison with, it was called a let du cachet, and the king could say, I want them put in prison, so you were put in prison without a trial, without defense. There was even a word for that, en Bastille, being put in the Bastille was being arrested by the king because you didn't agree with him politically, economically, whatever. Throw him in the jail because you're a a problem for the government. 
So the people were so angry at this, they just famously stormed the Bastille? Right. They stormed the Bastille to get the gunpowder that was in there, and because it represented this feeling. And if you wanted to see the Bastille today, what would you find? Nothing. There are little circles on the street where it used to be. So there are stones. You can see the stones, stones in the bridge, yes. There are a few yeah. stones of the Bastille left uh, further down the Boulevard Henri IV, next to the bridge going over the oh, okay. uh, island St. Louis. There's a little yeah. pile of stone, and they said, this is the original stones. I don't know what they're doing here. I'm not sure they are the original ones, but <laughs> the, the signs say so, so. It's one of the great non-sites of Europe when people go to Paris <laughs> yes. to try to find the Bastille. <laughs> yes, yes, and they use some of the stones to build the bridge from the Concorde, the Concorde right? Bridge, the Concorde yeah. Bridge hmm. is built out of the stones okay. of the Bastille. Julie, you live in uh, Burgundy, right? Right. How do you celebrate the Bastille Day? Well, in the this countryside? year I celebrated in Paris with the Parisians uh, for the first time, which was really fabulous. The five hundred thousand people in the Champ de Mars for the five hundred thousand people in the yeah. big park around the Eiffel Tower. In the big park around the Eiffel Tower to watch the it was picnic cow. all day, kind of like we do uh, in America. Take your picnic out on the lawn. Only there they have baguettes and wine and saucisson and fromage. What happens on Bastille Day in Paris? Well, everybody spends all day picnicking. It's actually Bastille Day, but it's also the first day of vacation for the French. And mm-hmm. so it's, there's a big feeling of just the summertime and vacation, mm-hmm. kind of like July 4th is for us, is summertime vacation day. And then at 10 o'clock in the morning, there is a, a parade on the Champs-Élysées, the military mm-hmm. parade. And then uh, the fireworks are at the Eiffel Tower at 11 p.m. The night before is the fun part about it in Paris, too, with all the firemen's balls. That they do on the 13th. So what's a fireman's ball? A fireman's ball is uh, a tradition that they started where the firemen put on a ball or a party, and that's how they earn money. They get donations. So it's free. It's outside. Every little arrondissement has their fire department that has a party, and it goes all night long. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Bastille Day in France. We're talking with Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Neil is calling from Milwaukee. And it uh, looks like Neil has actually been there for the Fireman's Ball. Hi, Neil. How are you? Great. Tell us about your experience on Bastille Day in Paris. It was a uh, terrific place to be because while there were 500,000 people in the Champ de Mar. There were fewer uh, in the firehouses, and it was just a great place to have a good time. The one we uh, went to was very near the Place de Vosges, and so not that far from uh, the Bastille. And it just uh, it was very simple. You walked up. There was either uh, someone taking donations or a small set fee, and uh, you went in, and it was just a revelation. They had moved all of the fire trucks out onto the street, so this huge, uh, lovely courtyard that was where the trucks usually were had been turned into Party Central, and the firemen and the Parisians were uh, dancing, there was a band, there was wine, there was beer, uh, just a lot of people having a great time. And did you feel comfortable there as a tourist, as an American? Absolutely. They were happy to uh, escort us in. I was there with some friends, and we just struck up conversations with various locals and tried to get a feel for what was going on. They certainly, it was not a sedate affair. It was <laughs> a very raucous uh, event. The, uh, the bandstand had some sort of uh, little roof or whatever, and there were three or four uh, what appeared to be uh, firemen dancing on top of the, uh, on the roof. Um, and so everybody was just having a great time. It, it started about nine and well, we didn't make it to the end, uh, from what I understand, it goes until about four in the morning. You know, I've been to one of those, and I, the first thing I thought when I was in the middle of all of that chaos and that intensity in the crowd, I thought, 
boy, I hope the fire marshal doesn't come by. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, oh, this is the fire department. He's probably in the middle of all this. It's just amazing mass of people partying. And that is the night before Bastille Day, right? That's uh, July 13th? The 13th. Mm-hmm. There are some on the night of the 14th as well. So uh, it depends on which firehouse. But uh, yes, the night before is uh, the primary night. And Neil, what's your memory of the actual 14th Bastille Day? What went on in Paris for you? Well, there were the uh, the military jets screaming overhead uh, as part of the parade. You know, everyone out uh, enjoying themselves, people gathering on the Champs-Élysées, people picnicking, and it was just you know just a, a great place to uh, to enjoy the day and you know celebrate a French holiday instead of your own. That is so great. Thanks, Neil, for your call. Thank you. Anne's calling in from Fort Wayne in Indiana. Hi, Anne. Thanks for your call. Hi. Good to talk to you. My next trip to France is going to include Brittany because I am of Breton descent. So given the unique cultural identity of Brittany and their unique Celtic nationalist fervor, is Bastille Day celebrated any differently there um, than in other parts of France? Patrick, you, don't you live in near Brittany? Or? I do live in Brittany. In Brittany, yeah, no. Yeah. So Brittany is Celtic people, and there's a little bit of history there because uh, it's wants uh, more autonomy. Is there a, a little bit of uh, less enthusiasm? For no, it's the same there? thing, the 14th of July. Something we were talking about, it's, it can be, depending where you are, it can be celebrated on the 13th or on the 14th. Okay. And the big thing is the uh, local balls, but also the fireworks. The fireworks are mm. a huge, huge thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something really fine everywhere. And every little town will spend some, some money into uh, getting a, a little doll uh, firework going around, but they will be all over the place. I'm a sailor, and I've got the experience of sailing along the coast on the night of the 14th of July. And you see something like 15, 20 fireworks pretty much at the same time all along the coast. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's unreal. So you don't really need to be in Paris to have fun. I don't know. You 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 could could make a case that the small town might give you a little more intimate uh, look at French culture. Yeah, and if you, I mean, uh, I can imagine that if you go to a town like Concarneau or Saint-Malo where they've got the fortification, the firework is very often set against the fortification and you've got some amazing light on there. It's a bit like, uh, it's not in Brittany, but like Carcassonne in the south of France where they've got this amazing thing. Is this a time when people are eating traditional things and having just celebrating their culture or is it just a party and fireworks? No, it's just a party and fireworks. There's no, there's no real menu of the 14th of July as you would think of Easter or Christmas, something like that. And thanks for your call. It sounds like small town Bastille Day is just as exciting as uh, big city Bastille Day. Absolutely. Thanks. I think that's going to have to be a stop on my visit. Have fun on your trip. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Julie Sanvo, you live in Burgundy. How how was your experience? Because you've been there for more than a decade with your family. What's a small town Bastille Day like for you? Well, like Patrick said, it's all about the fireworks. And everybody goes to either the local lake or the local park, or if there's a chateau, the gardens of the chateau. Where I live, there is the Sete des Clues, the seven locks uh, that were started by Henry IV. Um, back in 1604. I never got finished by him, but they're still there. The stone uh, remains of the locks, and so they actually do the fireworks there, and everybody sits up on the hill. The locks meaning the, how the canal? The canal, yeah, it looks altitude. like a staircase of canals. Sta- oh, okay, mm-hmm. so that would be the place where you go to gather. To and that's where we the, gather. And, and, and all the generations there. Do you find that uh, younger generation sort of rolls their eyes, or is everybody getting involved? Oh, in no, everybody gets involved. In, in the countryside in France, it's all about the families getting together at multi-generations. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Bastille Day. And, uh, Patrick, uh, when people cross the border going into France, uh, a lot of tourists think uh, the Marseillaise, the national anthem of, of the French people. And I would imagine you hear that on Bastille Day. 
Yeah, you will hear that the message there, but it's not a huge, huge thing. But, uh, you know, that's the Marseille is a very interesting song because it's a very bloody song. I mean, it's kind of a, I'm going to cut your throat and your blood is going to go into my fields and everything's going to be fine. And that's only the ver- first verse and it yeah. gets a bit bloodier <laughs> as you go down. Right. Yeah. There, there are arguments in France about changing, changing it. the national anthem because it's gone so far. I mean, imagine a, a football-friendly uh, match when you the guys are next to each other and the French one are saying to the other ones, we're going to cut your throat and your blood is going to go into our fields. I mean, it doesn't sound very good when you no, think of it. Not very political. We all know. Da, 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 da. Can you just tell us, translate in a little bit of uh, singing the. the uh, let's go, song. kids of the country. Allons enfants de la patrie. Le jour de gloire. The day of glory has arrived. After that, it goes like uh, those, those guys are coming to our land and they are raping our wives and killing our, our families and stuff like that. But we will turn to them and cut their throat and their blood will, will go into their fields. And uh, let's go for it. Citizens to arms. Citizens to arms. Julie and Patrick, thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to try to be in France July 14th. That's good. Mm-hmm. All right. Merci bien. Our Franco-American celebration of Bastille Day continues on the streets of Paris next as an American journalist tells us what makes her Paris neighborhood feel like home. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Historian David McCullough joins us in just a bit to look at the role France has played over the years in the lives of many prominent Americans. Right now, let's get an American journalist's view of what it's like to live in Paris. The neighborhood where Elaine Cholino lives doesn't show up on any top ten lists of places to visit in Paris, but it's her favorite part of the city. Her neighborhood along the Rue de Martyrs succeeds for the most part in maintaining a traditional feel for everyday life in Paris. It's got more than 200 shops, restaurants, and businesses all gathered together in a dense half-mile. It's where Parisians still take time to chat with shopkeepers and one another, as they've done for generations. Elaine introduces us to her neighborhood in her book called The Only Street in Paris. Elaine, bonjour. Oh, it's always fun to talk to you, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you are sort of living the dream for a lot of people who just love Paris. You're living not only in Paris, but on a street that you just love. Uh, You call it the only street. Tell us what's special about the Street of Martyrs. Well, it's my only street. And I say it because I was able and fortunate enough to develop a very special relationship with the merchants and the artisans and the inhabitants of this street. And it's very different from my old neighborhood, which was in a much chicer part of Paris, over near the Bon Marché department store, not too far from the Eiffel Tower and the Luxembourg Gardens. And you really had to get all dressed up to go out to buy a pound of butter. (laughs) This street, the new neighborhood where I live, is what they call much more populaire. It's much more popular or down-to-earth. And so I can be myself on this street. And over time, I kind of just got to know everybody, and that made all the difference. So what makes the Street of Martyrs unique? I mean, how is it special? Imagine going out every day, no matter how blue you're feeling, 
at about 12.45 and buying a hot, crusty baguette, the perfect baguette. How can you be sad if you have the perfect baguette? Mm. How can you be sad when just across the street is the cheesemonger who's been there with his wife for more than 50 years, and he will take all the time in the world to explain to you how to know when a camembert is perfectly ripe. Mm. And then you just go next door to the butcher, and you can buy the most extraordinary smoked jambon, uh, jambon fumé, and you can even talk, you know, have a conversation with the butcher about slicing it at the exact right thickness that you like because it's <laughs> oh. the way your father sliced it in his little Italian food store in Niagara Falls. I love it. Simple pleasures. That's what makes it. <laughs> I mean, you can see all the museums in the world, but if you can get that joy of simple pleasures. But, you know, some people would say, yeah, but you're spending more money for your cheese when you buy it in a little shop like that. You could save money by buying it at a supermarket. What, what would the people on your street say? You know what the French do? And it, it takes a long time. They'd rather have a better quality of food and eat a little bit less. So you might find yourself in the butcher shop behind the little old lady talking to the butcher for 10 minutes about her two <laughs> perfect lamb chops. And will they be sautéed? Will they be broiled? Will they be baked? Will they be uh, marinated? And you have to wait there. And our American sensibility is, you know, we grit our teeth and we say, oh, my God, this is taking too long. But after a while, you just say, if I'm going to survive, I better get into the act. Yeah. So you kind of get into the conversation. I have discovered my inner Julia child on this street. Perfect. Nobody makes fun of me when I talk for 20 minutes about the best-tasting cherry tomato in the world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elaine Cholino. Her book is Rue des Martyrs, The Street of Martyrs. And for Elaine, it's the only street in Paris. And Elaine, I love to hear you talk about these little intimate details that you could go through your life and, and never really appreciate. I mean, for a lot of us, butter is butter. I would imagine on, on your street, in fact, I love the way you describe uh, the different kinds of butters. You did it with, with just joy that there's such great opportunities for whatever butter you're in the mood for. You go into the cheese shop and they've got these three huge mounds of butter because we don't buy our butter in a little rectangle wrapped up in aluminum foil. You just get a chunk of it and you decide, do you want the one that's sweeter or do you want the one that's saltier or do you want the one that's creamier or do you want to have one that's a little harder and more crumbly and then one day I took these different butters to do a taste test to the cafe across the street and sat there with my butters and my bread that I'd gotten from the bakery next door and the guy from the cafe said you want butter I'm going to show you butter and he went back to the refrigerator <laughs> and he pulled out this butter that he got from his brother-in-law from the Kabylie region of Algeria it tasted like ripe cheese. It was like no, a butter I had never had in my life. But this is the kind of play and kind of fun we have on the street. Oh, and I, I can't even get a, a decent baguette on my street. I don't know where I would go for a baguette where I live. And you've got it, you got it hot out of the... We've got a choice. Oh, <laughs> We've got a choice. We've got a gazillion bakeries on this street. <laughs> now, Elaine, uh, your street is closed to traffic on Sunday mornings. Is that right? That's right. Now, tell us why that matters. Well, it's zoned so that the lower part of the street is open for pedestrians only on Sunday mornings so that everyone can be more efficient in bonding with each other and doing one's food shopping so that you can prepare the perfect uh, Sunday lunch with the ingredients that you're going to buy on the street. And it makes the street kind of like a, a block party every Sunday so that the lower part of the street on Sundays becomes a a vehicle for politicians to hand out political tracts and 
once a month, there's a free book exchange, but you don't even have to give a book to get a book. You just go there and you can grab as many books as you want. And it's a perfect way for an American visitor to, um, you know, brush up on French because you can get all these uh, French books for free. You know, it seems like it's almost designed to make a stronger community. It is, but it's also a, a neighborhood that's changing and it's changing very quickly, which is why I decided to write the book now. There are lots of new chic little boutiques that are opening that sit side by side with the fishmonger or the butcher mm -hmm. or the greengrocer who's been there for decades. And uh, even though many of them are food shops, they are extremely upscale and sophisticated. So it's probably hard for the, the little one-off cheesemonger to compete with some of these chains. They better have rent control or better own the walls of their property. And that's how they can uh, stay in business. Because if they've been there forever, they've got protection. Yeah, because Barcelona just did away with its rent control. And mm -hmm. overnight, all the charming shops in the Gothic Quarter found themselves on the verge of extinction. I mean, it changed the character of the city. Yes. Well, this is very different. I mean, in Paris, you still have this kind of protection. And I hope it always exists because it enables Paris to still retain some of this feel of normal people being shopkeepers and yeah, normal people yeah. taking real pride in selling their products that they happen to, to know about, too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elaine Cholino, and her new book is Rue des Martyrs. And it's really about how you can be a temporary local when you're traveling in Paris. It celebrates what's unique about this collection of villages that Paris is it's featuring a street that is a, what did you call it, Elena, a designated artisanal street? Yes, it's protected by law. There is a law that went into effect in Paris uh, several years ago that says if an artisan goes out, another artisan <sighs> comes in. You can't, there was a big crisis in the neighborhood when the fishmonger went out, <sighs> when the fish store went out, and everybody was afraid you were going to see a clothing shop. But it was illegal, and the mayor of our little neighborhood every day would run out to the wholesale market in uh, the outskirts of Paris at 5, 6 in the morning to lobby all the fishmongers to take over the shop. So they just appreciate this. This is family values. This is community. This is the fabric. It's of family this. values and community. Mm -hmm. And even today, I was out on the street, and there was one of these little chic shops that sells nothing except, uh, I don't know, Madeleine pastries. And the two shopkeepers are out on the street. They cannot mm -hmm. stand to be in their shop. <laughs> they're, they're standing at the doorfront, looking out at the neighborhood, just watching, you know, who's walking up yeah, and down the street. Yeah. And this is, there still is a communion between the indoor and outdoor in Paris. And this is why cafe culture has survived. Mm -hmm. People sit in cafes as extensions of their living rooms, and they watch the world go by. I've really focused on a, on a similar street. I think you know Rue Claire. That's my favorite street. Yes. It's my only street. And um, there's also a lot of people will say the the other great street is uh, Rue Montregoy, which is near, yes. near yours, isn't it? Not too far. Yeah. Yes. So you're over... Um, I'm in the 9th arrondissement, south of Montmartre, so, due south of that big sacre -Cœur, you know, that white, big white church. Yeah, Montregoy yep. is between uh, sacre -Cœur and the river, and you're south. I'm south of Montmartre, yes, gotcha. south just of that top point of Par the highest point of Paris. So are there many streets like this, or is it these three? No, there are others, although you're naming three of the most important ones. Most I like mine because it's a little less known. You know, the Rue yeah. Claire is very, very chic, and it's right, you know, it's in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, so you get yeah. lots and lots of tourists. And it's wonderful. It, that was my old neighborhood. And the Rue Montorgueil is, is great, too, but it's not mine. Yeah. What's wonderful about this street is I was able to get to know 
the merchants and the artisans and hear their stories. Now, this is a great thing about being a journalist is mm -hmm. you learn to talk to anybody about anything. It's wild to be able to learn about uh, 18th century mercury-driven barometers, for example, or about a transvestite cabaret that's been there for uh, almost 60 years. You write these beautiful little insights. I mean, there's a, a man in an old school shop that still restores these traditional barometers. Well, it's a woman, actually. She took it over from her father. Okay. And she is the only person in Paris to restore 18th century barometers that have mercury in them. And mercury is largely considered a very toxic substance. But yeah. there are exceptions in the law if you deal with antique apparatuses, appareils, that include mercury. So you can actually go into this Madame Gillery shop, and if she's not too busy, you can sit and watch her work. Hmm. Just to visit that, to visit any designated artisanal street in Paris will give you a different dimension of Paris that I think is really important for travelers to put on their list when they're going to be traveling there. Elaine Shalino is joining us from Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book about life on the Rue de Martyrs is called The Only Street in Paris. Elaine's also written La Seduction to explain how the French play the game of life and Persian mirrors the elusive face of Iran. She also guides tours to Iran through New York Times journeys. Elaine's website is elainechilino.com, and that's spelled S-C-I-O-L-I-N-O. We're at 877-333-7425. And Skylar's on the phone from Atlanta with a question about an upcoming trip to Paris. Hi, Skylar. Thanks. Hi, Rick. I'm calling because my husband and I are going to Paris. We've been several times, just the two of us, but this time we're taking our one-year-old son. And so we're not looking to do a lot of the touristy things, but we really just want to go and have picnics and take long walks and really sort of soak in the city. And so I wanted to ask whether the Rue de Martyr would be a good place for young families, or if you have other ideas for places that would be fun with um, my husband, myself, and our young son. Well, if you're going to be staying in Paris for more than just a couple of days, I would urge you to rent an apartment and not stay in a hotel, especially if you have a very, very young son. You'll feel much more as if you belong in Paris. You'll feel as if you're part of the fabric of the community. And you can go to the Rue des Martyrs or a street like it and prepare your lunch, you know, buy your hot bread and buy your wonderful um, charcuterie and your cheeses and your fresh fruits and vegetables and take it home and put on some wonderful Edith Piaf music and mm -hmm. feel like, hey, I belong here. <laughs> nice. All right, Skylar, have a good time with your family trip. Thank you so much. Bye now. And James is calling in from Virginia Beach. James, thanks for calling. All right, thanks for taking my call again. I see you're still challenged on your mastery of the French language. I cannot <laughs> pronounce French. I, but... <laughs> I just can't get I, it. I, I first, in 2010, I did seven days in Paris, and we stayed over near the Rue Claire and ate lunch a couple times on that. But you know, maybe I'm... it just occurred to me, James, I probably like Rue Claire because I can pronounce it. <laughs> it's easy. You know, the lady, you know, the merchants along there in the markets and all the restaurants, they work with you and they smile with you if you're French is not very good, but my French is excellent, so I, I'm okay. <laughs> good. So, James, what's your favorite place in Paris? When I went back on my own, you know, being a, a retired person in my 60s, I, I stayed at a hostel over in the 10th arrondissement, which is right near the Place de la République, and, you know, near the canal, that canal Saint-Montaigne. Oh, yeah. So, in the mornings, I would wander out and find somewhere to eat at the eateries, and in the middle of the day, I might, you know, go down to the touristy park and museum, but, but after five o'clock, I would come back with the peacefulness and the shops and the eateries, and 
one day I, you know, I walked west, you know, went to the Rue de Martyre, and I walked up the Rue de Martyre, you know, looking at the artsy area and the shops, and, you know, just looking for, you know, a place to eat some supper. And then, you know, when you get all the way up to the Place de Abbesse, then I could ride the metro back to Republic because it's, you know, it's all uphill when you're walking, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. But, it's an uphill street. So when I go back to Paris, I like to stay in these neighborhoods. You know, they're way out there on the edge, and you can feel like a Parisian for a couple of days, and, you know, you don't have to go down to the touristy sites, even though, you know, I've been to the museums, I've been to everything in Paris at least once. James, that, that sounds like good advice. Thanks for your call. Okay, thank you very okay, much. Okay, take care. Bye. So, Elaine, the, uh, James was talking about the uh, St. Martin's Canal, the Canal Saint-Martin. Yes. It, that's a beautiful area, too, isn't it? It's a great area, and every uh, week or two, it seems as if there's something new happening there. There's some wonderful bookstores over there and wonderful little restaurants, mm-hmm. and a lot of young people just sitting along the canal. Uh, you know, our Skylar had asked about picnics with a small child. A lot of people picnicking on weekends, mm. and, and it's just this sense of that the city belongs to you, Mm. that is just so much fun. You know, that is a quintessential thing to do, especially in Paris, would be to go to a street like uh, the streets we're talking about and put together a picnic, but have to visit four or five different shops and then enjoy it in a beautiful setting. Yes, well, the nice thing about Paris, whether you're working or you're not, is that it's, it's kind of like a living museum. And so you turn every corner and you... It's an adventure. You know, it's a visual yeah, adventure. Yeah. It's like a visual museum. And so it's hard to be really... Look, you can get depressed anywhere in Paris. can be v- really, really gray in the wintertime, and it gets dark mm. at 4.30 in the afternoon. But, <laughs> you know, you walk past a shop, and you can smell a lemon tart, and, you know, you just have to say, there's something good about the world today. Uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful byproduct of travel in a lot of ways. This is Travel mm-hmm. with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elaine Cholino. Her new book is all about her adopted home street. Elaine, you've been living there for 10 years now. Describe your home, and are are you accepted after 10 years as an American on this street? Well, I've lived in Paris for more than 13 years, and I've lived on this street for more than five years. I am accepted on this street, and one reason is that I come with a spirit not just of being a crazy American, but also with I have real pedigree because my grandfather taught me how to cook. My Sicilian grandfather taught me how to cook in Buffalo, New York. And my father was a small Italian food merchant in Niagara Falls. And he taught me how to sell and he taught me how to eat. And so I come with standing as a person of standing because I, I belong in a way that where I can relate because I come with my own history of of being a food person. Of appreciating fine points of life, probably beyond even just food. And, and that gives you your, a membership in this cultural club. Well, and we're talking mostly about food, but this is also a street. You know, we talked about the bookstores. We talked right. about the woman who repairs uh, barometers. But it's, uh, you know, I, I love, imagine as an American going to a transvestite cabaret that's been in business for more than 50 years and the and the owner who's in his mid-80s so respected by the community that the president of France gave him the Legion of Honor Mm. for his voluntary activities. It wouldn't happen in America. (laughs) It wouldn't happen in America. You are absolutely right. And thank goodness we have a chance to experience that in our travels. Elaine, thank you so much. And your book, Rue des Martyrs, The Only Street in Paris, it'll inspire a lot of travelers to get beyond the museums and really feel the pulse and appreciate the, the people magic of Paris.
Merci bien. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rick. You can listen to earlier interviews we've had with Elaine about life in France in the Travel with Rick Steves archives. They're in the radio section of ricksteves.com. One of America's favorite historians has long had a love affair with France. Up next, David McCullough tells us how many prominent Americans have taken great pains to take what they learned from the French back home to make life better here in America. Happy Bastille Day. It's Travel with Rick Steves. From the start of our nation's history, France, and Paris in particular, has played an important and unique role. It's long been a refuge and a place of inspiration for American statesmen, inventors, and artists. And what they learned from the French in Paris has then sailed with them back to the United States, injecting art, culture, and innovation into our American society. David McCullough explores and celebrates how influential Americans traveled to Paris back in the 19th century and then came home to make history here in the United States. And that's all in his best-selling book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. David joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. And David McCullough, thanks for being here. Well, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. So, David, your book talks about Americans who journeyed to Paris between 1830 and 1900. What's the premise of your book, and, and why this, this time? Because these young Americans were going to improve themselves in their, in their ambitions to do something of value in their profession. And there, wasn't the, there was no opportunity for the kind of education that they knew was essential. Painters knew that there was no school of art in this country. Architects knew that there was no school of architecture in the United States of America. Medical students knew that medical training in this country was way behind that in Europe, and in France, they could get the greatest medical training in the world. Uh, George Healy, one of the, the great classic portrait painters of the 19th century who did Abraham Lincoln's portrait and many others, he knew that if he stayed in the United States and just went struggling along as a painter, he'd never be very good. The same was true with Samuel F.B. Morse, who invented the telegraph, but he was an artist who went to Europe really to perfect himself as a painter. And it was while he was in France that he got the idea for the telegraph. And the medical students who went over came back to transform medicine in this country from what they had learned in the School of Medicine in Paris. You know, the Atlantic Ocean was much bigger back then, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. In the late 1830s, the steam transportation was not very much as yet. They went over by sailing ship, most of them. And they went by the hundreds. One of the most brilliant examples of it is the uh, great sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, who, in my view, is one of the most interesting characters I've ever written about. Admirable in the extreme, a street kid, out of the streets, literally the streets of New York, who had no opportunity to speak of until he got to France and got admitted to the École de Beaux-Arts as the first American student in sculpture ever. If you think of an American who would be a smart kid from a good family in a great American cultural center... By the time they got to Europe, there was just nothing like it. I mean, these guys no. were like bumpkins. And keep in mind, they, they did not speak French because Romance languages were not yet taught in our colleges and universities, with few exceptions. They might have had Greek or Latin in college if they went to college, but they didn't know how to speak French. Imagine being thrown into a hospital training school where you can't understand the language of the man giving the lectures, and you're in with hundreds of other students— who are way ahead of you, and you're trying desperately to keep up, and yet they did it. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who's one of my favorites in the book, 
who was a great essayist and wrote Autocrat at the Breakfast Table, among other things. And he would come home to devote his life to teaching anatomy at Harvard for 30-some years. And when it came time for him to retire from Harvard, some 35 or 40 years later, and he had to give his farewell speech, he talked about the professor he'd had at the École de Médecine in Paris. What a breath of fresh air and sort of a, a declaration of freedom to be able to come from America where you couldn't dissect bodies, no. you, you couldn't look at a woman's body no, as a doctor. So. No. And to go over there and to find out, hey, there's a whole new dimension of, of ability Cadav- to study. Cadavers were illegal. And because they were illegal, they were only available on the black market. And because they were only available on the black market, they were extremely expensive. So the, the doctors got to work with a cadaver, but students never did. So you'd have people graduating from medical school, supposedly surgeons, who'd never cut open a body in their life, doing it to a live person, and very often with little or no anesthetic. And then in your book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, you talk about Elizabeth Blackwell. First female doctor. What a beautiful thing for women to have. Oh, she was marvelous. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely marvelous. And courageous. These are all courageous so, people. So, well, how and was most it? of them had no money. How was it that Elizabeth Blackwell, I mean, it's such a fascinating part of the book. She went over there and was actually able to come home and, and really bring the whole world yes, of indeed. gynecology yes. to the United States. And she, she went for the same reason the men went, yeah. because she knew that education here was insufficient. And we, we, of course, were trying desperately, and these young people all knew it, to catch up. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, Historian David McCullough reminds us that not all American pioneers went west, and that's what he talks about in his 2011 bestseller, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. In it, he tells the story of important Americans whose lives were influenced by living in Paris between 1830 and 1900, and then how they came home and influenced America. One of the exciting things about, about your book, The Greater Journey, is the arduous trip that was involved in just getting there, crossing the Atlantic yes. and then getting to Paris. Talk about that a bit. Well, they, they came across very slowly and often uh, not very pleasantly, and they would land at Le Havre. So everybody really would basically land in Le Havre and then yes. head straight into yes. Paris. Yes, and there was no train up to Paris. They would go by wagons or giant stagecoaches, they look like. Right they would almost always stop at Rouen. And they would see the great cathedral of Rouen. And it just took their breath away. Now, consider, they'd never seen anything that high, that big, in a work of architecture in their lives. The tallest structure here in the United States was probably Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Not much at all. So we're talking these Gothic cathedrals soaring to the heavens, made out of stone. And they'd never seen anything even remotely so old. It just took their breath away. And several of them, including James Fenimore Cooper, said if the trip across, with all its agonies, had amounted only to seeing that cathedral, it would have been worth it. And then, that was just Rouen, which is sort of a yeah. secondary side trip today for most people. Right. When they got to Paris, then it, was just it must have just... Well, Paris was, what, four times the size of New York City? I would think of that at least. And, of course, it was like it always has been. It was jumping. It was life full of action. Public spaces, arts, yes. uh, performing arts. Fantastic food. Fine wine. Yes, and museums, and just walking the walk, and climbing to the tops of the hills, and going into the great cathedrals. All complemented by a sense of fashion oh, and style that yes, didn't exist yes, in yes. the States. One of my favorite stories of all is that Augustus St. Gaudens, the brilliant sculptor, I think he was our greatest sculptor, suffered from depression 
very serious depression. And he went into one of these lapses, and he came in one day to the studio and, by implication, let it be known that he was going to go destroy himself. And he went down, he was on the left bank, and he went down to the river. It was early in the morning, and went out on Pont des Arts, and he was all ready to jump off the bridge into the river. And he looked at Paris in that early morning light, looked at the view of the river, the Seine, and the architecture on both sides, and he said to himself, I don't want to die. I want to live. Wow. And he turned around and went back up to his studio whistling. And 150 years later, that's the bridge that's almost falling apart now because so many lovers go there and yeah, lock their padlocks They're on taking it. them off now. They're taking them, thank goodness. Because the weight was too great. Yeah. <laughs> but that's when you go to Paris so yeah. many times, you just think, you, you step up from the view or the table, and you just say, life is good. But the res- restoration of the, of the life force, the life desire, yeah. by just being in that spot. And it wasn't as though he'd never seen it before. But he'd never seen it in that light at that moment, at that time in his life. It saved his life. You know, we've got a lot of travelers listening, David. And uh, when you think about the joy we have in Paris today, talk a little bit about some of the sites. I understand from your book that the Louvre was open on Sunday for locals, but every day for foreigners? Yes. Why? They just want people who were visiting to get the full dose in uh, the little time they had there. And you had the Seine River boats and can-can oh, yes. dancers and, and boulevards. Oh, exactly. And just the pleasure of strolling, of seeing. Then when you think about Paris, there are no great mountain ranges like you have here uh, in the it's northwest. Culture. There was no no seaside view. There's a river, but it isn't a particularly distinctive river. Right. What you have is what human beings have built. What you have is architecture and open spaces. When Wilbur Wright got there, and he was looking at how they laid out their spaces, and he said that every important public building has open space in front of it so you can enjoy it. Why haven't we done that in New York? Why don't we do that in our city? He's learning just as those people in the 19th century learned by the very experience of being in Paris. David McCullough is reminding us of the important role France has played in the lives of prominent Americans especially as our country grew up during the 19th century. His book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, was released in 2011, and his latest bestseller about the Wright brothers is out now in paperback. You'll find links to his works at davidmccullough.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Barbara's calling in from Chicago. Barbara, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Um, I'd like to know, in your opinion, what has been America's greatest contribution to France in terms of culture? What a good question. Our writers and painters and our appreciation of how much we have learned from the French and how we have gone to battle, gone to war two times Mm -hmm. to be of help, to save them, to save that way of life. More Americans are buried in France than any other place in the world except our own country. Think of that. Some of our most sacred national shrines are in France. Normandy, for example. And also we know what it's meant to people that we love who've been there. Gershwin, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, on and on. There's hardly a writer of merit or importance that hasn't been to Paris. And if they haven't, they better get over there quick. 
and soak it up. It's a wonderful two-way road, I think, between America and yes. Paris. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. You know, David, uh, sort of relating to Barbara's call, but in the other direction, we've talked about all these impressive people, young, ambitious people. When you sort of sum up what they learned and then what they brought back to America, what do you think Americans should recognize uh, from France? How have we benefited from France? Because there's a lot of people inclined to be threatened by, you know, French social sensibilities and so on, and they're quick to put down the French. But I do think our countries have a very deep and powerful bond and a lot of gratitude directed in both directions. What can we be thankful for to the French today in our culture? How did these men and women you're talking about, what did they bring home and and how did they change America? Well, first of all, we should be thankful for them because we have our country. Without the French help in the Revolutionary War, we almost certainly would not have won the Revolutionary War. It wasn't just that they sent Lafayette and others over to be on our side to give military support, but they, they provided money. We couldn't have done it without them. Right. And we should never forget it. We, we more than doubled the size of our country with the Louisiana Purchase. There you go. Never forget that. But we should also be grateful to them for the way they welcomed these talented young Americans, the way they, they were proud to serve as part of their education, to bring them farther forward in their aspirations to achieve something of value. History is about more than politics and war. History is about art and music and architecture and medicine and science and music, all that the human mind and the human spirit can achieve in in so many forms. And often it's more important than the politics and the war. Gershwin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mark Twain, you name it. They are in many ways far more important than most generals and politicians of our past. And they're enduring. They're part of our life. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullum about the greater journey, Americans in Paris. David, we've been talking about statesmen, artists, doctors, brilliant people. There's also a lot of entertainers that just went over there. Um, Buffalo Bill, Tom Thumb. Absolutely, uh, yep. Kind of like an American stage yes. show. Yes, It's kind of a complicated mix. You've got high thinking and low thinking, basically. How did the French respond to these uh, Americans that came over? Were they seen as bumpkins or, or, or what? Well, they saw us as, a, as good showmen. And, of course, some of them were very important. The uh, black musicians who went over in the 20s and 30s, the jazz musicians and the uh, symphony, serious classical music players and the composers. Cole Porter spent a good part of his life in France and in Paris. And, of course, he wrote some songs about all of that that endure forever. I Love Paris by Cole Porter is one of, the, one of the best things he ever wrote. And the love of art for the sake that art enlarges the experience of being alive. These people that you write about in your book, they seem pretty serious. Did they get caught up in, in, the, in the fun dimension of Paris? Oh, certainly. When they had time. Mm-hmm. The medical students were desperately hanging by their fingertips trying to keep up. Right. And most of them had no money. Yeah, from a practical point of view, how do you go over there with traveler's checks? What what do you do? Well, I wonder how George Healy ever survived. Somehow he did. Yeah, so they Um, were really living month to month? They didn't didn't bring a treasure chest with them? Oh, no, heavens no. Um, Mm -hmm. And, well, they're living the left bank life of Mm -hmm. artists, which they loved. This must have been so much fun for you to write this book. Uh, To a certain degree, was was taking on this project uh, just a great excuse to go to Paris? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes and no, because most of the research was all here. 
it's the letters they wrote home. Oh, okay. The diaries they oh, brought that's right. home. Yeah. Really was. My wife and I have been going to Paris since the 1960s, and we adore it, and we never tire of walking the streets and always learn something new. But I went back to, to walk the walk of, of all of these people. I went to where St. Gaudens Studio was. I went to where the medical students worked and studied, all of that. But that's part of the joy of the, of the job. I sometimes think I take on some of these projects so I can get to go to these places. I would imagine. So what's, what's a, one of the great, one of the simple joys that you, you and your wife would enjoy next time you go to Paris? Well, it may sound like this is an advancing age, but it really isn't. We just love to go and sit in the park. Yeah. And watch the people, watch the children. It's a quintessential French thing to do. Absolutely. And it brings back strong reminders of how much value there is in just calming yourself in a beautiful setting and soaking it up. And David McCullough, if you were in that park and you saw an American reading your book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, how would you hope that that book impacts that person? I would hope that that person would want to get the most out of their time there and they'd come back just as soon as possible. Come back to Paris as soon as possible. Yes. Develop an appetite. And bring their children. Yeah. Bring their friends. Share the wealth. Share the joy. Viva la difference. And I want to thank you, Rick, for what you do. I think your work is extremely important. You've brought joy and interest to so many of us. I'm one of your big fans. And my dear friend, keep it up. Thank you. I think we're both uh, lucky and, and, and blessed to have found a niche where we can do what we love. It Absolutely. gives us energy. The joy is in the work, isn't it? It is, and yeah. it connects our good readers and viewers with a beautiful yeah. world. David McCullough, thank you so much, and uh, best wishes in all your thank future you. projects. Thank you very much. Some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have written haiku poems inspired by their travels to France. There's a link to send us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are some recent submissions we thought you might enjoy. John Allen from Tacoma, Washington, writes us a haiku about the architectural appreciation he developed in the north of France. Bayeux Cathedral. Gothic sits on Romanesque like a wedding cake. Carl Carlson from Kailua-Kona, Hawaii, sends us this haiku memory from his trip to France. Sancerre on a hill. Sauvignon Blanc at its best. We need to return. And Bill Gregory of Portland, Oregon, prefers to write limericks instead of haiku. He sends us this one that he wrote in France to commemorate its historical ties with the United States and the citizens who have given their lives for each other's freedom. When Washington met Lafayette, the link between our countries was set. Together we fought, and freedom we got. And so, let us never forget. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Coos Productions in Paris for studio help this week, and to Gretchen Straug for reading this week's travel haiku. Send us a haiku poem you've written about what you experience in your travels. We just might read yours on the air someday. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to France and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Paris's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next French adventure, 
Begin your trip at ricksteves.com.